continuing our studies in the doctrine of God's immutability and the very fact that God does not, indeed cannot, change very much part of God's essential being, uh, that no change Jehovah knows. We're going to read a section here in Malachi chapter 3, just to introduce the subject again. Uh, This morning, of course, the text is really verse number 6, but let's read from the verse number 1, of course, that speaks of the gospel, and indeed the coming of John the Baptist, and ultimately the coming of Christ Jesus. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the harling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside from this, that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Amen. This is the word of God to our souls today. Now you will appreciate that we have taken more time over the doctrine of God's immutability than we have over some other aspects of the doctrine of God. And in part that is due to the fact that there are certainly areas of confusion and difficulty in the modern evangelical world. And there are those who in recent years are popular in evangelical theological circles they have said some strange things regarding the doctrine of God's immutability. And open to ideas that God may not change essentially, but change in some other relational way. And really leading to the idea that God's creation has an impactful change upon God. And those areas are, are certainly uh, problematic and will lead to deep problems uh, theologically. But I understand that a lot of that is perhaps beyond the scope of, of this congregation not your abilities by no means, but really beyond your practical scope. And you may not be reading and aware of some of these uh, controversial areas. And so in many ways, I want to look at this subject and have sought to do so in a practical fashion. Now, you see the benefits of these doctrines. And if we go wrong on the doctrine of God's immutability, the implication of that is we will lessen our security in the gospel. The doctrine of God's immutability is foundational to our gospel certainty and our gospel security. And we see it even here in Malachi chapter 3. Of course, the text is verse number 6. It's very obvious. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I change not. Jehovah changes not. I sang in that hymn. But the implication or the application of that doctrine in this context is very, very wonderful. Because one of the difficulties you see in the Old Testament is you have the promise of God in Genesis chapter 3. 
and that the seed of the woman shall crush the serpent's head. There's the promise of, of victory and triumph in the gospel. And that promise is worked out in various covenants. Through Noah, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Moses and David. And those covenants are, are worked out in and through the Old Testament. But the people of God, again due to their sin, they continue to violate and to break God's covenant. And God at times comes in judgment upon them. The northern kingdom are taken to Syria. Uh, God again has that love and affection for his people in, the, in Judah. And you see again at that point God's faithfulness to Judah to maintain the covenant. That's essential. Because the ultimate outworking of the covenant is the coming of the messenger of the covenant. Verse number 1 of chapter 3. John the Baptist preparing the way, Messiah coming as the messenger of the covenant, and God is keeping his promises. And because of that, verse 6 says, Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not, if you like, finally and completely and overwhelmingly consumed. God preserves a remnant. God preserves a spiritual seed. And the covenant promises are passed on from generation to generation. Because God does not change his eternal will. The will of God is eternal. It is an aspect of God. He has this will. It's not so much uh, that the will is additional to God, but God is eternal in his being, and his will is part of who God is. And it does not and cannot change. He will absolutely bring about his covenantal promises. And so for our own encouragement, we must hold fast upon the doctrine of God's immutability. You get the Hebrews chapter 13. Jesus Christ the same yesterday. Today and forever. We have that assurance. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So these things are, are really gospel realities. And so we looked at various. Uh, again the word difficulty is probably not the best word. We look at various areas that may cause confusion. Areas that people may then lead to wrong thoughts. Regarding the immutability of God. God's work of creation he again makes this world. There are now men and women with whom he interacts. Does that therefore bring change in God? And we say no. Because God acts for the first time does not make God something new. God is creator eternally and he manifests that in the act of creation. We saw in a similar fashion the attack upon God's immutability with the incarnation. Does the nature of God change when Christ comes in human flesh? And we saw again, no, the doctrine of immutability is proven in that Jesus Christ is no less God. And the incarnation is not a subtraction of deity in any capacity, but rather the addition of a true human nature. And so the incarnation does not deny the doctrine of God's immutability, and it does not question that in some way. Again, because of the union of the essence of God, if there is change in the Son of God's deity in some fashion, then there is change in the divine essence. And that doesn't happen. We see again clear evidence in the word of God that Christ comes as God manifest in the flesh. Then last time we were here, again I wasn't here last Lord's Day morning, but last time we were here and we thought about the difficulty of God's, or the doctrine of God's impassibility. And that's the language of a confessional standard that God does not have passions. Does not have passions or parts. Again, we understand the parts idea. God is not body and soul. And God is not physical in that sense, having component parts, but rather is one simple essence. The doctrine of God's 
simplicity, and therefore he does not have parts. But also we see that God does not have passions like men. And that has led to significant difficulties and challenges. Because when you read the word of God, you read several, in fact several is not even strong of word. You read multiple references to God possessing what we may term emotions. But using that term in a qualified fashion. We see joy in God. We, we, we see grief in God. We are not to grieve the Spirit of God. We see the wrath of God and the love of God. And we see various terms that certainly involve to some degree a capacity for feeling. And because emotions are looked upon as being changeable, therefore people have said if we subscribe emotions to God, therefore we are going to be Dealing with the idea of God being changeable. Now here I need to detail and give some more uh, really clarity on this issue. Historically in reformed circles there's been a differentiation between the word for passions and the word affections. affections. And affections really in reformed circles is the preferred term for this area of thought. God has affections rather than passions. And the idea there was that passions describe something which occur outside or because of influences outside of ourselves. And so because of some external influence, then there is the resultant passion. That's how it's often used uh, theologically. Again, that might not be how you use it, but I'm talking doctrinally and theologically. That's how the term was used. And so the idea, well, God cannot be moved to passions by external capacity or external influence. So therefore there's the avoidance of the term for passions, but the term affections was often used for that which had its origins within. So it's within God. God has these, he possesses these affections. So God does not have passions, but has affections. That's how it was often worded. Now let me read you one, uh, one modern theologian and his words on this. Divine impassibility does not mean that God sustains no relation to or action in the world. That was the issue that really there were some and they were trying to maintain the doctrine of God's transcendence. That he's altogether outside of creation in that sense. But they then, they then questioned the fact that God relates to this world. And the Bible clearly shows that he does. So this man continues, though God does not experience emotional changes because of the world, he does have unchanging affections with regards to things in the world and acts in the world on the basis of those unchanging affections. So God is unchanging in his affections and therefore he has a relationship and a response to those things in the world. So things in the world changes but they do not provoke change in God. God reacts and responds in an unchanging way to those things. Now, there are various ways in which Reformed theologians have tried to, uh, to understand these things. I'm not going to give you those various ways. There are various terms that were used, various, if you like, philosophical attempts to understand these things. I think it's important to say this. There is great mystery. We find ourselves governed by the boundaries of the word of God. We find this quite often. God is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. 
Um, but part of God's infinite being is that we do not always have the capacity to put all this together. There are aspects of the being of God that are clearly beyond our comprehension. God is altogether different. He is God and we are men. And so it's important to see that there's a mystery in understanding how God is affectionate, if I can use that term, and yet immutable. And Reformed theologians have not always agreed. And so if you do find yourself uh, uh, drawn into some online debate on the subject of immutability and God's impassibility, remember that good men have differed on this area in various ways. You go back to the Puritans and you can see various Puritans having different ideas on this, this doctrine. So be careful how you argue. Do so with grace and much humility. But there are some things that we can say with a degree of certainty. The Bible clearly shows God to be most loving, kind, merciful, wrathful. We see all of this revealed in the word of God. And yet God's affections are stable. They are not fluctuant. They do not change with the tide, if you like. The Bible consistently teaches that God does relate to his creatures in love, goodness, mercy, etc. But yet he does so unchangeably. We've got to guard this. Let me give you one, one other quotation. The advantage of retaining the term affections is that when we reflect the language of the Holy Scriptures for God's moral perfections, love, joy, hatred, wrath, pity, and so forth, we avoid giving the false impression that God is impersonal and aloof from relationships, which no Christian theologian desires to communicate. We don't want an idea, because the Bible doesn't teach it, that God's aloof in some way. But God does relate to us. And interacts with his world. But he does so in a way of unchanging affection. And so there are some things we can say negatively. Okay, so again, often when you come to define the attributes of God, it is helpful to define the negatives. God's affections are not physical. So what ways are God's affections different than ours? Well, they're not physical. In the sense that when we experience emotions... There is a physical component to your emotions. That's not true for God. God's emotions also and God's affections are not irrational. They're always governed by his entire being, his perfect understanding and his perfect will. And so our emotions at times, let's be honest, they make no sense. Sometimes we find ourselves feeling a certain way or responding in a certain way. But if we thought the thing through more clearly, we'd have a different response. That's never true for God. God's emotions are always entirely rational. That's how God is. His affections, emotions are rational. It's also worth noting that God's affections are not constrained or coerced. That's the idea that his affections ultimately arise from himself and not from what happens outside of him. And yet God truly does relate and responds to the world he creates. So that's all I'm going to say on that. It's, it's a huge subject. We'll come back in a future study and look at some more details regarding the actual identity of God's affections. We'll look at wrath and love and kindness and those things. But for now, I'm simply saying to you that the idea of God's impassibility does not undermine or suggest or any question the doctrine of God's immutability. 
So let's not make God frozen in time, as some have done in their theologian, uh, their theologizing. Uh, they've got this idea that God is, is not active or engaged in this world. He is. We've got to remember that. We can grieve the Spirit. We can please God in our obedience to the gospel. And there are languages like that in the Word of God that we must treasure and hold on to with all of our souls. Any comments or questions that before we move on? Yeah, Dan. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And so they, again, for those who are kind of watching on, there's, we, we have clearly, as Dan says, we have an unchanging God who, who therefore all that God is is internally consistent. So in every aspect, you use the illustration of the law, so God's actions are consistent with his law because that's a reflection of God's character. And I would say also the case is that, that God's affections then are also consistent with his character. So if God is, is wrathful, it's not in a sinful fashion. It's a, it's a morally pure fashion of, of wrath. Or if God, if God loves, he does so because it's proper to love. So he loves in Christ. Not for what we are, but because of what we are in Christ Jesus. So I'll, I'll take George and then that's okay as well. George. The, the idea of not being indifferent or, or, or disconnected, those are, those are good concepts. Because one of the ideas here is that those who are kind of, if you like, a hyper view of God's impassibility to the idea that it's, when the Bible uses those terms, it's describing kind of providential acts. So God does things but not feels anything in terms of his actions. Uh, again, you do get that sense of aloofness and disconnectedness with, the, with creation. That, and again, my, my desire is not to argue theologically. It is to say, well, the Bible clearly is it's, it's, it's full of references that they may well be anthropomorphic. They are anthropopathisms, human emotions given to God. They may well have that feature to them, but they mean something. They're, they're not abstract in the sense they don't have an actual meaning in, in the actual being of God. Yeah, so, yeah, Ken? Just in the No. 
No, we're not talking about soft, we're not talking, we're not even talking about emotions in some ways, we're talking about passions. And so again, going back historically, so impassibility is this idea that God does not have passions. But there's been very much care, particularly in the Puritan language of this. So this developed from the Reformation, but it was certainly substantial in the 1600s. There was great care to, to distinguish the idea that God, again, I use the term this morning, God may possess affections, but not passions. And so, so passions, again, are, are constrained from the outside. They're fluctuant. They're often irrational. And this idea that so God does not have, have the passions like a man but has affections that are unique to God. So godly, God-centered, God-focused affections. So that's the idea. The word, the word simply is it's that word. It's a theological idea for passion, not just suffering uh, in that case. Yep, yeah. Uh, if you take comfort in the scripture alone, that you see, I think you, scripture mostly comes to my mind, is uh, who knows the mind of God? Yeah. Amen. Those are those are great, great concepts, and we you keep coming back to this. Like I, I, almost every class we've been since the doctrine of God, we, we've gone so far, so far, and then said, ah, I, I'm not sure I can go further than that. There's an, an aspect in the character of God that we we cannot define, we cannot understand. There's an an idea that God is beyond our comprehension, but He's He's revealed Himself, and so the secret things, but there are things revealed to your children and to your children's children. So we get that blessedness of of revelation. So we hold on to revelation. And I, I deal with this issue because we subscribe to confession of faith. So we are a reformed confessional church. And the confession says God has no passions. And so if you're reading that in your own studies, you say, well, we, we believe that. Well, what does that actually mean? And so that's how we take the time in terms of, of trying to wrestle through this to, to understand it as, as best we can. But this is not a, it's not even intended to be a systematic theology uh, class. I guess that's even beyond my, my abilities to teach you in that regard as well. So I, I give you what I have. And I try to keep us, this is what the Bible teaches me on these issues. Yeah, Kent? Just one last, is, so could you point to like one scripture that there, someone might use to say God is impassable? You know, like what's one, like you could deal with the Trinity, right? I mean, Trinity is not used in the Bible, that word, but you can point to different scriptures that talk about the person of the Father, the Son, Yeah, they won't, they won't have one scripture. So the idea of the, uh, proving the doctrine of God's impassibility does arise directly from the idea of God's immutability. And so they, they will argue. And I, I, I say, I shouldn't say they, I, I will argue. Okay? I believe in the doctrine of God's impassibility. I'm, I shouldn't be uh, even remotely suggesting there's any doubts in my mind. There's not. But it's a derived doctrine from the idea of God's simplicity. He doesn't have parts or passions. Um, because, again, e- emotional states are fluctuant and changeable, then we, we deny that God, God's, God's being did not change in creation, where now he finds himself in a relationship with mankind. Like God, God loved Adam and Eve, you know, and you, you, you find that, but they're, they're, they're new creatures, but that doesn't change the character of the being of God. And so that, the, the idea was there are things outside God now in creation but they are not changing the being of God. He, what he is, he, he is eternally, has been eternally, will be eternally. And so that's the idea. But there's, not, there's, not one, there's not one text. It's, it's a, a derived doctrine from the doctrine of God's immutability rather than one text. Okay, so let's, let's move on to a couple other areas in terms of the... And these are, these are kind of... Yeah, Dizzy, before we go.
No, so this is asked the question, how do we apply this in terms of if God's impassable? So God's, we, we are not called to be impassable. That's not our calling. God has made us in his image, but we are not simple beings. We are, we are complex creatures. And so you, you don't get the idea that God has called us to impassibility. That's not the case. But I think you're right. The application is so God's pure affections should be the model because we are to be like God in every aspect of our lives. So, so God's pure affection should be the model of our emotions. But we, we must change. You know, because of our sin, we have to change every aspect of our, of our being. So, you know, what is conversion? It's a change in our understanding. It's a change in our will. And it's a change in our affections, in our emotions. We, we, we stop loving sin and we hate sin. That's a, that's a change in us. There's a, there's a uh, if you like, there's an, an affectional change in us in conversion. So, so we're, we're not called to be impassable in the sense of God, but when we are converted, then our standard is God's pure. And so you get the idea that our, our affections should be governed uh, by the word of God as, as a revelation of God's character. It's a great question. And so, yes, yeah, so the Bible is not silent regarding our emotional responsibilities. And that's an idea. Some, uh, get, sorry, just one, one second. You get this idea, the confusion idea that emotions are inevitable. That you, you can't control them. There's no governing of your emotions. You, you can't help how you feel. No, absolutely you can help how you feel. And there are things you do in your understanding to make sure you govern your emotions in a proper fashion. Yeah. George? Yeah, I think it might bring it to the head. Um, would you say, I would think that you would be impassable in heaven? Do you agree with that? Yeah, no. So we're, yeah, there'll be no sinful passions in, in heaven. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, there'll be no change either. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be perfect in that sense, so we won't need to experience change in our emotional states. Like we're, you know, we're, we're not to let the sun down in our wrath. We're meant to deal with our wrath. There's, there's, there's aspects of emotion on earth that we're going to deal with, not, not, in, not in glory. No, absolutely. Yeah. It does, but even, even in... True, it answers a lot, but this, the, the, even in glory, we are still not God. And so there, there are aspects in which our emotional state and glory will not be fully akin to, to who God is. So, sorry, I saw another. Yeah, Dan? So, yeah, so back to what Stacy said, I was just thinking of two things about the application. And it, it still goes back to God's law, but how we feel, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. We see Abraham's life, how he blamed and waited. Not saying that, you know, we have a license for sin, but we see the application of his faith in action. And same thing with Christ, because he's the God man, although without sin, we see how we're supposed to yeah. believe God. Oh man, we, we got a choice in life to do run with this these people or or go along with this in the world. God says, even if we don't understand. Yeah, no, that's right. So you're, we're responsible for, again, emoting according to the word of God as everything else. And, but let, let, me, let me take us even further. So what you have, you, you mentioned Abraham believed God. It was accredited him for righteousness and him for righteousness. Reckoned to him. Part of Christ's righteousness is a perfect human emotional life. So our sinful emotions... Our, our, our anger that is sinful 
is governed by Christ's perfect control of his emotions. So you, you have in the being of, or the person of Christ this union of divine and human and the human natures without sin, a perfectly righteous human nature. And B.B. Warfield wrote a very helpful essay on the emotional life of Christ. And he expounds the sinless emotions of the Lord. And in really in a very, very helpful fashion shows us Christ's joy, his grief, his anger, uh, all of the things we see in the, in the humanity of Christ Jesus. And so praise God, we, we are so fallen, our emotions are all over the place. And we are so prone to sin in that area. That is sin. It is sinful to feel wrongly. It is not, it's not a neutral area. You think to yourselves, uh, I can't help how I feel. No, you can. And when you're guilty of sin in the area of emotions, that sin needs to be forgiven and covered by Christ. And praise God it has been. His righteousness includes the entirety of his humanity, including a perfectly reasonable soul that lived obediently and righteously in all of his ways. So it's a wonderful assurance we have that Christ perfectly kept the law, even in his emotional life. And he's perfectly conformed to God's likeness in his emotions. Well, well it's good, good to have these interactions. We're going to come back to some of these things in, a, in, in future studies regarding looking at, if you like, the essential uh, affections of God revealed in the word of God. We have another area, though, that's it's, it's a challenge. And that is the language in the Bible of God repenting. God repents. Turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Let's just look at this briefly. We won't take some time on this, but of course you have this language of repenting. What is repentance but a change? And therefore if God is said to repent, therefore he must be said to change. And so you have it in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. It's a very explicit statement of you know, like affections in the heart of God, it revealed in the inspired word of God. Here it says it grieved him at his heart, and it repented the Lord. So what are you going to do with that? Is that a denial of God's immutability? Does anyone try it? How would you respond if somebody, again, you're discussing this with somebody in the public square and they say you believe in an unchanging God, but the Bible says God repents, the Bible's internally inconsistent, and God himself denies himself in the word. How can you be the Bible? You shouldn't be the gospel. You should live your life, eat, drink, and marry tomorrow you die because God's not immutable. They may not say it that way, but they might do. Okay, so what, what are you gonna, how are you going to respond to this? What's happening here in the Bible? How are you going to deal with this issue in terms of God's immutability? Hey, Paul. Okay, so let me, let me take back, back, back on stage. So, so first of all, the, just forget people watching on, listening in later on. Uh, I'm going to get backwards here, okay? So we affirm that God is pure in his judgment. 
So God's holiness is immutable. He's immutable, unchangeable in his standard. Okay. You then go back that it's language the Bible uses to indicate God's displeasure with that which is against his character. So you get this idea of language that aggrieved the Lord in his, in his heart. And so what you do see in this, these references is language that is anthropomorphic. It's, it's God using human language to illustrate for us his displeasure at sin. And he's using languages that is very, very strong. And so please understand, the word repentance does not necessarily always be due to a mistake or sin. And so again, we, what we're doing here is we're, we're taking our understanding of repentance in a modern evangelical sense and saying well, repentance must always refer to mortal sin or mistake. And of course, that's not the case with God. And so the language of repentance here is, is really just illustrating the point, or God is, is using language to make the point that, that man's actions are not ignored by God, but rather he's not disconnected, he's not disinterested, as George said earlier on, but rather he sees the actions of men and he's displeased and he uses language to emphasize that reality. It is not in any way suggesting that God has changed his mind. Again, some have taken that idea. It's not suggesting for a second that God has, has made a mistake in his will. It's still asserting the unchanging will of God. And let me show you that in one illustration. And it's over in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Turn across 1 Samuel 15. Because in this passage, you have language of God repenting and not repenting in the very same context. And so the Bible itself is comfortable with using these terms in different ways to really emphasize the point. And so the idea is that the reader will read these terms and will think, well, how does this all work together? Well, you've got there 1 Samuel 15, it's to do with Saul as king. It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be my king. Over verse 35, Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Again, if we take the idea, this is really language describing the, 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 the grief of God towards the sinful rebellion of Saul. That's the language being used here. It's this idea of, of grief of Saul. It grieved him in his heart. Same idea. But then look across to verse number uh, 29. Now let's, let's go from verse 20, 28. This is again Saul. Saul pleads with Samuel uh, again for, for, if you like, for, for a change. And Samuel says, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. So what is it? He, he repents. He doesn't repent. What's the case? Well, you, you've got to look at this in terms of the, the context of those words. So verse 11 and verse 35 is really describing Saul's sin and the heart of God towards Saul's sin. And the repent there has that broader meaning, not a moral mistake, not a change of mind, not in that sense at all, but rather a word denoting the grief of God for and towards sin. But when you get to verse number 29, what you're seeing here is Samuel is asserting that God is not man. That will, 
if you like, change his mind. But rather, God has eternally decreed that Jesus Christ will come not from the line of Saul, but from the line of David. And therefore, in God's eternal will and purpose, the fall of Saul is part of God's will. But as Saul rebels, God does not blind to that or not unmoved by that. But it's essential to the revelation of his character that when we see sin in Saul, we see God responding as he does. It would be so ungodly for Saul to sin and God to say, well, that's my will anyway. It doesn't really matter. But rather we're seeing internal consistency in God. He is perfectly holy in all of his ways. And so when man sins in Genesis 6 or Saul sins here in 1 Samuel, God reveals himself to be grieved in his heart due to his holiness. But at the same time, God puts this verse in Samuel's mouth in verse 29, asserting the fact that God's will does not change. And so God is immutable in his eternal will. He's unchanging in his eternal will. The same thing is true, of course, when you think about the situation in Nineveh. God says to Jonah, go, tell him 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Was that true? Yes. If Nineveh did not repent, they would have been destroyed. And yet when they repent, it says that God relents. Or God repents in Jonah chapter 3. You've got that language there used also. I'll just read to you one of the verses there. Jonah chapter 3 and the verse number 10. And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil. Now the, the threat was sincere and genuine. But the eternal counsel and will of God was that when they would repent, he would relent. It's all part of God's will. And so we've got this this language in the word of God that that certainly is clear. One of the theologians, Robert Raymond, says this. If men and women alter their relations to him, he will always respond in a manner consistent with his immutably holy character. And so the Genesis 6, 1 Samuel 15, Jonah chapter 3, the change is not in God. It's in man. And the change in man is then seen and responded to by God in a manner unchangeably consistent with his character. Again, Thomas Watson makes this point. When you think of 1 Samuel, you think of Jonah, he says there may be a change in God's work, but not in God's will. That's a helpful way to think of these things. We're seeing that these are, these are true regarding the unchanging character of God. Get that. Yeah, no, so from a human perspective, we see human responsibility. But the change we see in man as the working out of God's will is always part of God's eternal will. Okay, so it's always part of God's eternal will that that Peter would deny uh, the Lord. 
And yet Peter's sincerity is undoubted. His repentance is sincere. That's all part of God's eternal will and and, and counsel. Of course it is. Um, But there's still change in man. And then the Lord is is grieved when he sees sin. And rejoices when he sees righteousness. That's, That's entirely consistent in the word of God. So God unchangeably interacts with man and so one last issue and then we need to finish this for today uh, the doctrine of propitiation is also asserted as a challenge if propitiation is the appeasing of god's wrath well then god is wrathful then there's no longer wrathful that's a change in god but again the the, the same reality is the case what, what do we believe regarding propitiation god provides in christ a propitiatory sacrifice the ground and the means of propitiation are offered so God's wrath is towards the sinner. They trust in Christ Jesus. God's wrath appears, and they no longer are a child of wrath, but now are a child of love. But again, the change is in the person. And the unchangeable God responds perfectly to that change. It is, would be ungodly for one to trust in God's provision and God to maintain his wrath. Again, well, with this, we'll close. You know, you want to know the application of God's immutability? Part of it is the fact that if you've trusted in Christ Jesus, God cannot be angry with you. Because you've placed yourself, by grace I know, you've placed yourself under Christ as your propitiation. And the unchangeable God cannot be angry when his wrath is appeased in Christ's sacrifice. The unchanging God. And so this, uh, this idea that, that, that God can become angry with you again in some future time is wrong. Propitiation means what it means. But it's not changing the being of God. It is changing, if you like, the state of man in relationship to God. It's a very different situation. And so, yeah, George. Yeah, absolutely. All of those sins, so the sins of unequal yoke and all, all manner of sins. And again, it's to the church that we're told not to grieve the Spirit of God. And so even those of us who are, who are children of God, we, we, we must understand that in our, in our sinful rebellion, we, we grieve the Spirit of God. So we must guard our ways, watch our ways carefully and diligently and seek to obey God in all we do. But praise God, we rejoice in his unchanging character regarding the gospel. So rush through the end of that. I wanted to finish that section today, and then we'll we communion next Lord's Day, and then we'll come back to a new section, uh, Lord willing, in the following week. So let's just call upon the Lord again today. Let's seek God's face. Eternal God, help us and bless us now. Guide our hearts and our minds, and enable us, O Lord, to pursue righteousness for Christ's sake. May the word of God live and abide in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.